This morning, we are going to continue to move forward in our study of the seven churches. We are now on to our fourth, fifth, fifth church, the church of Sardis. Um, the more I studied and prepared for the message for, the, for today, the more I could see a spiritual reality that is, can be applied to us. And I'm not talking about just Naples. I'm talking about generally speaking. I'm not going to get into it. You will get to it. But there are a lot of similarities of this church with today's culture. Which is interesting because, as I said before, we as, as Seventh-day Adventists, we interpret these, uh, we interpret the Bible, especially prophetic uh, writings, as a historicist um, perspective. So we take prophecy and we look at how it applied to at that time and then how history, it fits into history and how it fits into our reality as well. So this morning, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Now we've graduated from chapter 2, we're on to chapter 3, and we're going to spend the rest of our time together, uh, probably about half hour to 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> I love kids, man. They, they say, speak what's on their mind, they're like, oh man. 30 minutes? What? I promise you, if you get engaged, it's going to go by real quick. And that is one of the things that I wanted to highlight. Church is only boring if you're not engaged with it. Okay? Church is only boring if you are not engaged with it. That's why we have roundtables. We want you to engage with the Word of God. We want you to wrestle with it. And if we can't get you the answers here, maybe you can take that wrestling home and you can wrestle with God for a little bit. Maybe he, that can spark up a study. So before we begin, let me invite you to pray with me one more time. Father God, we are grateful for this opportunity to come and to fellowship and to open your word and to listen to it this morning. We pray that your spirit will continue to lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the things that I noticed that we, I have mentioned here, and some of you may be asking or may have asked yourselves, well, how come he hasn't talked about this a whole lot. And that is the historical time frame for which these churches fall in. So I'm going to open with that, give you a brief synopsis of each church, when they fall, and why we view it for that particular time period. Then we're going to get into the church of Sardis. Cool? All right. So Ephesus, we know that the church of Ephesus was its time period and from a historicist perspective comes from the year 31 AD to 100. We talked about this briefly. 31 AD, what happened there? Something happened that was really special. Man, one person with me. So yes, Jesus died 
in 31 AD, and, and that's the official start of the Christian church. Because he died, he came, he died, and he resurrected. You can't have one without the other. Let me be very clear on that. Paul talks about if Jesus didn't resurrect, we wouldn't, there's no reason for us to be here at all. So it's the culmination of those two events. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, roughly to about 100 AD. Then we have uh, Smyrna. There we go. Okay, so Smyrna from 101 to uh, 313. What happens here is that, remember they were called for, you will be persecuted for about 10 days. From a historicist perspective, we view those 10 days to be 10 prophetic years that were intense persecution. It was an intermittent, it wasn't constantly, it wasn't 10 years straight, but it started with an emperor by the name of Diocletian. And it was picked up by his successor, um, Galatius, Galerius, excuse me. So the, there was a time frame where there was this heavy persecution with that church because the, there was a lot of uh, emperor worship involved at that time. And the Christian church said, no, we worship only God. So after Smyrna, we have Pergamus that took place from 13, 313 to 538. Excuse me. There are two significant historical perspectives here that we need to understand. 313 is the conversion of Constantine, the emperor Constantine, from the Roman Empire, he said that he saw a cross in the sky and the voice from heaven said, by this you shall be saved. From that moment, he believed that Christianity was the way to go. So from a political perspective, he, why not create peace in the land, pronounce himself as a Christian, and make Christianity an, of, an official religion, per se? But it wasn't until 538 that we have a tran, uh, a, the, the transition from the Roman Empire, political empire, we call that pagan Rome, okay? And it transitions into a religious empire. So we have in the Bible a transition from Rome as an empire, like a political uh, initiative, and then we have, it transitions in 538. That's the official establishment of the Christian church. There was only one official church, and that was the Roman uh, church at the time. From 538 to 1500s, where we find the, the, the church of Thyatira. Now, granted that all of these things, when you read these particular churches within the context of Revelation, these all fit at that same time. These all fit for that particular reality. But it also fits in historically in, in, our life, in, in how we view things. Excuse me, how we view things. What happened here was that there was a lot of, there was a shift from Christianity being a, a, a religion that focused on relationships. 
to a religion that transitioned into traditions. And this took place from 538 through the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, and in the 1500s is when we have all the, you know, the famous reformations um, coming about, these religious awakenings that took place at that time. So there was, there was a shift, okay? Again, from a personal relationship to salvation through works, through uh, learning, through traditions, and rather than the experiences that had brought them up until that point. And so now we come to the church of Sardis. There we go. And the church of Sardis took place roughly from 1500, the early 1500s to 1790. There was something interesting that happened here in this country in the year 1790. I'm not saying it is the reason why we have this day, but something interesting happened here in this country in 1790. That was a day, that was the year that freedom of religion and a separation of church and state took place. There was a law that was created that there will be no official religion in this country. That happened in 1790. But what happens in this time frame between 1500s to the late 1700s that fits into the reality of Sardis? You see, those re- re- reformists that came beforehand that were pushing for people to go back into the word of God, back into a relationship with God, died off. And so what happened is their successors that should have taken that torch and, 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 and encouraged people to go back into the root, their roots, they began to study the Bible, which was great, but they went not the way they should have. I'm not, I just don't want to give up what we're going to be talking about here. Too much. But what they did do is they, they approached Christianity more from a philosophical approach than they did a practical one. We call that the age of rationalism, rationalism and secularism. Where they began to start to see things where I think we can do this and this fits within what God wants us to do. Okay, this is where now we jump in into the Church of Sardis. The Church of Sardis is, as you can see, it goes in a quickly clockwise. It's the fifth church. We have two more churches to go. It's a, it's a city that was known for its military prowess. Why? There was a gentleman there that he, when he was king, he amassed so much riches that he decided to build a fort. And this fort was located on a hill. And in, in order for you to get to it, there was only one road in. And because there was only one road in, that road was the primary place where the sentinels would take watch and they would guard but outside that fort, on one of those, those walls, 
there was a cliff. And it was considered impossible for you to scale that cliff. This was roughly about 600 BC when the, when the city was established. But there was a gentleman by the name of Cyrus. Cyrus, he eventually conquered that city. You know how he did it? He took one, one of his guys. Today we would call this special ops. His, uh, the Navy has their SEALs. The Army has their Green Berets. We have our PJs. And so these guys, they're assigned to do specific tasks, covert op operations under the, cl the, 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 the cloud of night. And so what they did is these guys, so Cyrus took his entire army to that road that was guarded, created a ruckus. And so the entire regiment from Sardis went to the front gate. If you're, if, if, you're, if you're hearing the story and you can see the similarities with Babylon, well, that's because Cyrus was an extremely intelligent and strategic individual. So he sent his special ops group, his PJs. By the way, PJs is uh, parachute jumpers. Uh, they didn't have parachutes back then, but they were the special ops. Today, the PJs are the special ops of the Air Force. So he sent his PJs, you know why I'm partial to the Air Force, right? So he sent his PJs over and they scaled that wall. And they came into the city of Sardis. And this was quite a while before Jesus came. We you know history has a tendency to repeat itself because later in the year 200, I think it's 248, if I'm not mistaken, another individual came in and did the exact same thing to Sardis. And from that point on, it lost its prowess. But it's what, what was taking place in the city is, and within the Christianity at that time is what's important to us. They held a temple to Artemis, also known as Cybel or Sibel. And, and they were famous for raising the dead. That was one of the areas in which they focused in. They, they, they loved to focus and put an emphasis on originating life from nothing or from, from death. And this was part of their pagan worship. So the, the threat to their own, their own Christian experience came not from the outside coming in, but from within its own church. Because they started to compromise some of their beliefs. And so now as we look and we have a, a slight background to the city of Sardis, we can now dive in into what the Bible says. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And it says this. 
These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We already know that the seven spirits of God and the seven stars are an, a reference to the seven churches. It's not that there are seven literal spirits, but that is the manifestation of the Spirit of God working in these seven churches, which are the seven stars. And he begins by saying, I know your works, which is a very familiar. We've seen this language throughout the seven churches. But he says that you have a name, that you are alive. Pause. You have a name that you are alive. Do you know what your name means? Your literal name. Do you know what that means? You never looked it up. I had the curiosity one day to look up what my name means, which is Arthur. And it said, noble, strong as a bear. That's the, that's the meaning of my name. And so we were, I, we were in high school, we were sitting in Bible class, and we're going through the definitions of these names, and I said my name, and out from somewhere, my best friend at the time, he out strong, maybe as a teddy bear. <laughs> That's right. They're not very strong, are they? And so that kind of became the joke, but God is saying here, you, you, put, give yourself, you gave yourself a name that you were alive, but that's the only good thing that the people had going on for them. A name. Because right after this comes a, one of the greatest indictments that you'll find in, in the Bible. If God is saying that you are dead, you're dead. But you are dead. In other words, there's no life in that church. There is nothing that will cause people to see that church. There are things happening over there. They're dead. Not physically, but spiritually. So let's dive in a little bit more into this. Because the irony of it, there's little, nothing else good about this church other than your name means life. That's it. Who wants to be a part of that church? Well, let's go to verse 2. Verse 2 says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. You know, when you look at this word, be watchful, it, it is usually associated with eschatology. What does that mean, Pastor Art? You're going to find out. This is where roundtables come in. Your first roundtable discussion is going to come out to this. What does it mean to be watchful in the context of the New Testament. And there should have been some text here, and we're going to leave this up. So what does it mean to be watchful in the context of these verses 
And we're going to get to what this big word here means, eschatology. It's a big, it's a scholarly word to, to define a specific thing that will take place. Okay? So the question is, what does it mean to be watchful in the context of the New Testament? Here, these are your texts. Go. Once you come to this, these texts and you read these texts, please be intentional about engaging the young people in your table. Because this is important. Go. Okay. I, 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 we could leave. I could literally fold my Bible and say, okay, sermon's over. Amen. I really could. Because this is so deep that we could spend an entire sermon just on these two words be watchful. We're not. Not today. Okay? So, real quickly. Eschatologically is a scholarly word for last days. Does that make sense now? When now that you've read those books, okay, anybody raise your hand, please just, what did you get? So be watchful. What do, you, what do you get when you read these verses? What jumps out at you? What makes it um, relevant, I guess you could say? At anybody at any time. Be ready. Be watchful. Be ready. Okay? Alert. Interesting. To wake up. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to use the microphones now, but we'll do it for our next one. Just hold on to the mics, please, Maya. Thank you, Andrew. So be ready. Be alert. I heard here to wake up. From, from spiritual sleep, okay? To be sober. Not to be so busy all the time. Hmm. Okay? Being present. These are all great definitions. These are all right definitions. They're not wrong but it's, it does not convey the full spectrum of what it means to be watchful. Because when we read this, to be watchful, it's almost passive. Because you watch something, you're observing something, you're not doing something other than watching, right? In other words, you're looking out for things that are supposed to be incongruent with what you are observing. That's what be watchful means, at least that's what we understand it. But check this out. It is very commonly understood among scholars that to be watchful can be translated in this way. Show yourself watchful. 
Show yourself watchful, which means it has to be something more than a mental recognition of what is going on with you and around you, spiritually speaking. It's not simply stating that you understand that these individuals are behaving in an unchristian-like manner, but it's actually acting in a way that reflects your relationship with God to them. Does that make sense? So to be watchful is not just to be alert or to wake up, but it means to be in a position where people see that you are different. Think back about the church of Sardis. And think back about the time in which they came from. There was a struggle. There was a compromise. Oh, I think, you know, the age of... of of reason is one of the titles that is given to that particular time frame between 1500s and the late 1700s. People will start to think, oh, I can do this, but it's all right. But what was wrong with the church of Sardis is that they found themselves that they, they thought they were okay, but Jesus said, you're dead. Here's what one scholar says. It speaks to the, about being watchful. It speaks to the dangers of believers reducing their full commitment to God. I have this on the screen, so you can, if you want to have a reference to it. There it is. It speaks to the dangers of reducing their full commitment to God through Christ and of allowing themselves to be seized by things of lesser value. That is what it means to be watchful. So the question I have for you this morning is simple. One of the questions. Are you placing a higher emphasis and priority in the things of this life in comparison to the life to come? Are you placing priority of the things of this life versus the life to come? So now we come to the second part of that indictment. Strengthen. There are five, five imperatives in this, ver- in this church. Be watchful. Strengthen what you already have. The words to strengthen, it means to set, up on some, set it up on its feet. In other words, to set somebody upright. Fix yourself, so to speak. It's something that needs to be done. And there are times when we, as Christians, we need to fix ourselves, especially in our relationship with God. You may be asking yourself, well, I think my relationship with God is okay. And that may be, but is it okay before God's eyes? Because that was the problem with Sardis. They thought they had a great name. They thought they had a really good thing going for them, but God says, yeah, you think you got a good thing. That's the only thing you got going for you is your name. Let me be a little bit more straightforward. Some of you and some of us may say that we are good someday Adventists, and that may be the only thing that we have going for us. Let that sink in for a little bit. If I'm a good Seventh-day Adventist Christian, 
is the only thing I have going on for him. Well, this message is for you. You need to be watchful. And you need to strengthen yourself. But how do I strengthen myself? Right? How do I do that? Well, I also believe, and we as Seventh Adventists, we believe that the Bible interprets itself. And one of the ways that we do that is to remember. Chapter 3, verse 3 says this. Remember, therefore, remember, remember that the there is therefore a reason. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, what you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Let's talk about remember here for a little bit. Was there another church that had the word remember in its recommendations for it? I'll give you a clue. It's the first one. The very first church was the church of Ephesus. The church that had what? Lacked their first love. And God tells them, remember. See, remember is not just a, oh yeah, I remember. Can you remember the first time, those of you that are married currently, can you remember the first time that you saw your wife? Can you remember the first time that you went out on a date? Do you remember those feelings of, happiness of giddiness of warm fuzzies all over the place it's one thing for you to remember that it's another thing for you to say hey let's go out on a date now it's the actual doing the remembrance is not just the oh yeah things were so good you know the worst thing i hate when i hear people say is things were so much better when no they're not the struggles were different maybe you've learned how to deal with with those struggles back then better today but they're not necessarily better spiritually speaking we need to go back it says remember therefore how you have what? Received and heard. How, what did they receive? What did the church, now going back to the reality in the context of the church of Sardis, what did they receive? Most of these individuals were converts as, any of the, as all the other churches from the day of Pentecost. There was a significant amount of Jewish Hellenistic populations on all of these seven churches, but they all, most of them became converted at Pentecost. They're not that far removed. And so when John writes this, roughly about the turn of the century, in 95 AD, he's talking to their reality. So what did they receive? They received the instructions and the traditions of how to develop their relationship from the apostles. And they had heard of the things that Jesus had done. Part of remembering is also to put into practice what you have heard, what you have learned. 
And there are times when we do not practice what we have learned. I'm not indicting you all. I'm indicting myself. There are things that we have learned what to do as Christians from our traditions, from our teachings, that we kind of just, eh, doesn't really matter. Or does it? Again, looking and comparing ourselves to the reality of the Church of Sardis, they began to compromise their religious beliefs thinking that they were good enough. And here's a big pitfall that we as Christians have today. We think that everything we are doing may be good enough, but it's not necessarily good in God's eyes. And this is where he calls us to remember. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I come upon you. Jesus said these words, not just here, but he said it in Matthew. And he says it in, in uh, first, first Thessalonians. That he's coming like a thief in the night. Coming is a judgment pronounce, pronunciation on those individuals. I remember when I was a young kid, my, my kids and I were talking about this this week. As a I believe I was about six years old. We used to live in a, in, in a city called Joinville. It's a German town in, in southern Brazil. And I remember we left our house for, our, for vacation, for summer holiday. And when we came back, we arrived. There was footprints, muddy footprints, all over the house. We had been gone for about three weeks at my grandmother's place. Our neighbor heard noises in our, in our house, but thought we had arrived late that night and didn't think there was nothing wrong because the next day everything was quiet. But I, I kid you not, there was at least one set of footprints every three feet there was multiple people what happened was is that next to our house there was an empty lot and next to that empty lot ran a brook it had just rained and so they were they in their boots or the rain boots walked across the empty lot in the dark jumped over our wall which was probably about six feet broke into the house and stepped all over everything we owned, looking for valuables. And I remember having this sunk feeling of, why us? A thief comes when you least expect it. And Jesus is, is saying, if you do not remember what you have received and heard, it will be difficult to be watchful. It will be difficult to wake up. It will be difficult to put into practice what we have learned. 
And when I do come, I'm going to catch you off guard. And you're not going to like the results. See, both, as we said earlier, the church of Ephesus and the church of Sardis have the word remember. And they both have the words hold fast. They all do. But to hold fast here is to put into practice what you have remembered. How many of us, please do not raise your hands, how many of us here have forgotten something at some, some point about what we have learned and what we have been taught and what we see in scriptures? We sometimes will say, it's different now. It's a different era. It doesn't apply to us. Principles don't change. And through time, as God revealed himself to us, he is showing us through the church of Sardis that though we may think we are good enough, we still may be dead in God's eyes. So where is your spiritual walk with God? Where is your spiritual reality? Where is that at today? You know, we have an opportunity to evaluate ourselves today. Not the person sitting next door or next to you. But the question is, where is your spiritual walk with God today? What does that look like? Using a very... Often question I hear from your post, Steve. What does that look like? And does that look like it's good before God's eyes? Let's continue. Revelation chapter four, three verse, excuse me, Revelation chapter three, verses four and five says, You have a few names, even even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they may that they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Let me pause here, here real quick. The, when he is making an allusion to garments, Sardis was famous for being a city with its wool garments. And the moment that you soil wool, it becomes difficult for it to be cleaned. <laughs> I remember a time when I put a, 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 a wool sweater in the washer. Yeah. And it came out, it came out like a newborn outfit. Wool is, is a great, great commodity in terms for, it's the, the best breathable cloth we have. That's why the best suits are made out of fine wool. They were known for their wool, but Jesus is comparing their good works as to soiled garments. But those 
there were those still in Sardis. See, not all of Sardis is, is bad news. There were those that were faithful. We call those the remnant. We call those that remained faithful. These are the ones, he's saying, not all of them have defiled their garments. These shall walk wearing what? White. Because that was the ultimate goal. Because they are worthy. Not because of their works. They were worthy not because of the amount of time they spent studying the Bible. Not because of the amount of alms they gave to the poor. Not because they were sinless. But because of their relationship with Jesus. They were unwilling to compromise the things that they had taught and heard and seen in order to fit in. Let's go to verse 5. I don't know why this is not going today. Can you hit the next slide, please? Thank you. Verse 5, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. You know, the book of life is something that is very familiar to the Old Testament reader, because you will find, next slide please, you will find that the book of life is in, found in all of these. In Exodus chapter 32, you have an occurrence where Moses is arguing on behalf of his people. He says, Lord, if you're going to blot these people out of the book of life, blot me out as well. And so you have this reference of those whose names are written in heaven. All of these texts talk about the book of life in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, those that remain faithful to me, I will keep them in my book. In my book, I will keep them in the book of life. But the text always says that I will also confess their name before the Father, right? So this is our last question for this morning. Roundtables. Are there any conditions for which Jesus, which will prevent Jesus from confessing our name, before the Father? And if so, what does it look like? Is that clear? Are there any conditions for which will prevent Jesus? And I am approaching this from the perspective of, oh, it's all good. Before you start getting there, I, I know I did, I did a mistake, it's a teaching mistake. I know, teachers aren't supposed to give students their handouts before. I'm approaching this from this perspective. In today's Christianity worldview, it doesn't matter what I do as long as I just go to Jesus. That, let me be very clear. I am saved by grace. No doubt about that. But the idea that I can continue to do whatever I want to do as long as I believe in Jesus, I'll be okay, is not biblical. Okay? So it's based on that premise 
that I ask this question. Are there any conditions for which will prevent Jesus from confessing our name to the Father? And what does that look like? All right, go. So, real quick question. I, we, our time is quickly advancing, but I know that you, none of y'all have left, so let's get, no. Um, are there any conditions for which Jesus will prevent, which will prevent Jesus from confessing our name? Are there things that will do that? Denial of God. How do, what does that look like? You see, I guess we won't need the mics today after all. So what does, the, what does denial of God mean? What does that look like? See, for some, it can be different things. It can be an overtly intention for you not to admit that you are a Christ follower. It can mean, some, it can, it can mean to deny the teachings that you have learned. It can mean uh, to deny the, the traditions you have inherited from the Bible. These are all things that fall in place because they matter. It's not a question about being legalistic or perfectionistic, but it's a question about being faithful. Faithful to the one who calls us. Faithful to the one who has died on your behalf, on my behalf. What does that look like? Every single day. Everything that I do matters. Everything that I say matters. Everything that I... matters before God very often we don't think about these things and it's not a scare tactic because I remember as a young kid I I did some things I'm not very proud of but my grandmother sometimes would say Jesus is watching he's writing down every bad deed you have in the in heaven I'm like great I'm lost But that's not what this is about. It's about us building that relationship with Jesus. As a result of that relationship with Jesus, we reflect his character. Character is not just love. Character is everything else. To everyone. That's how we become peculiar. That's how we become different. And that he will confess us. There was a question that was brought to me. Well, why does one of those say angels? Jesus will confess their names before angels also. And it's because when you read in the context of the book of Revelation, John is beginning to see a vision, and the vision begins with the seven churches that transitions into what happens. There's a clear-cut definition of John's time and the things that will take place after this, which begin in verse 1 of chapter 4. We'll get there. Relax. But when John is looking in this vision, what eventually is unfolding before him is the scene of the sanctuary where God's throne is located and around God's throne and everywhere you find in the Bible a reference to God's throne, there's always an association with angels 
and heavenly beings being around it. That's why you have that text. Because right now we're only looking at the very first aspects of the book of Revelation. We're not looking at the whole thing. And so when John starts out, he's looking at the initial thing, and this is referenced by the lampstands and the seven spirits, the stars, which are the seven churches. So the book of Revelation closes with this statement, which I think is apropos. The book, excuse me, the church of Sardis. Notice that this is inverted in comparison to the other churches. This is usually given, this statement, this admonition, he who has an ear usually is given to prior before of the things that they should do. To Sardis, he's saying, listen, I've already given you what you have to do. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This morning, I challenge you to allow this, to hear the Spirit speaking to you this morning. If there are any areas in your life that you must change, recognize that. The Spirit will lead you. None of us are perfect. I'm not implying that one is better than the other. But we all can do a better job at listening to the Spirit. May God bless you. As we continue to move in a direction that will take us closer to our Heavenly Father. Because He is desiring all of us to be saved.